Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. I'm so excited to be interviewing this amazing couple. So, Martin first. Why don't you tell us... Jewish Christian. Why don't you tell us, how did you become a Christian? Well, actually, my parents were uh, baptized in order to be English. Uh, nothing to do with religion at all. Uh, very common in Jewish circles. So I was not brought up in Judaism or anything like that. Uh, but uh, had that background of being related to British culture and life as well as Jewish culture and life. Uh, and my parents, as I say, got baptized, and I'm sure you get proper teaching on baptism here. It's what makes you English. <laughs> well, that was pretty much what happened with me too, so I can understand it. Um, yeah, when I was 10, I found a Bible in a bookcase in my parents' home, my home, and I didn't realize it was a religious book at all, and so it was just like a novel for me, and uh, I began to read it, wow. found it was incredibly Jewish, and it had all sorts of Jewish history that I wasn't aware of, and I was fascinated by this amazing old King James Version Bible. Uh, and I began, we Jews normally begin books at the beginning. I realized that Gentiles normally start them two-thirds way through. But, uh, um, but So I started at Genesis 1. And I read steadily through at the age of 10, and I read the Bible through about once a year from then on. Uh, and when I was 13, I went to a new school and was badly bullied because of anti-Semitism, racism, anti-Jewish. Uh, and I had a bad time at school. Uh, and, uh, and then when I was 15, I realized that the hero of this book I was reading, the Bible, uh, God is the hero, uh, seemed to do incredible things for his people through the ages. And I think it was my first prayer, I asked that God would give me 24 hours in which nobody would say or do anything to me. And I meant by that no bullying, no teasing, etc. But God took me literally. And I had 24 hours in this boarding school in which uh, nobody, teacher or boy, said anything to me whatsoever, not a single word, uh, and no teacher took a register or gave me homework or asked me a question or anything like that. I played football <laughs> in the afternoon. Nobody asked me to pass the ball. <laughs> they probably knew it wouldn't have been any good anyway. Uh, but I had 24 hours in which I just, it was as if I didn't exist, and at the end of that time, I gave my life to God. Wow. And... Uh, I set out to be very Christian, very religious. I think I was converted, uh, I, but it was definitely my work uh, and didn't work awfully well. 
And then when I first went to university, another student very simply explained to me that what was important in life was not what I did for God, but what God had done for me in Jesus. Uh, and that just changed my life and set me on fire for the Lord, mm. the concept of grace. Amazing, amazing. I love it. Okay. So, out of that then, I'd love to know how you were called to the, to the mission field, particularly Asia, because <laughs> that's been your life. Yes. Work. It has. <laughs> yes, it has. Um, well, I'm a linguist, as you heard, and then when I became a keen Christian, various people in letters and directly face-to-face -face began to say to me, uh, keen Christian, keen linguist, two plus two equals four equals missionary. <laughs> and at first I said, no, lots of keen linguists who are keen Christians who don't become missionaries. And more people said it to me in one way or another. And I found myself saying it increasingly loudly, no. And then I lost my peace about it all. I really didn't want to work overseas. I'd lived in Bermuda in my childhood, and that was wonderful, but I liked England and I wanted to stay here. But I found I was losing my peace about it, uh, and there's a little verse in Colossians that says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And it has the, the word rule in the original Greek has the idea of determining what is right. And uh, I was losing my peace until finally I found I just had to say, well, Lord, if that's what you want, mm. then... It's okay. Uh, and the peace of the Lord came back. <laughs> and I'm so glad, you know, I feel quite sorry for people that stay in Britain. Uh, <laughs> and actually, quite seriously, you miss the real work of the Holy Spirit these days. <laughs> Probably true. Well, I've, I've just come back from Singapore and Malaysia and Indonesia with the huge growing churches and the dynamic work of the Spirit of God. And, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, Elizabeth, moving on before we, we completely <laughs> feel awful. Before I drop any other bricks. <laughs> yeah. um, you grew up on the mission field too, didn't you? But I know it wasn't, it wasn't always easy for you. Can yes, you tell us I was born in China, and um, my, my father was a doctor heading up uh, a mission hospital in two different places during his over 30 years of ministry. And uh, we, uh, or his children, had to go to a boarding school because it was the only way in which we could have our education. And they had to leave us there from the age of six so from six years old, I remember my mother taking me to this school where my older brothers and sister were and 
saying goodbye and didn't realize I would never see her again because she got typhus and um, the Lord took her. So it was, it was very difficult. In fact, it was just about the time of the Second World War and Japan had invaded China. And shortly after my parents left me um, to go to the mission work, uh, the Japanese came to our town, um, shut the gates of the school, took the headmaster away for questioning and told us we were all prisoners of the Japanese army. And we were kept in prison for three years from, um, by, by them. So it was a long while without seeing family. And tough. And tough, yes. Very <laughs> short of food, no new clothes, for, no shoes, no everything. Very, very difficult. But one of the wonderful things was in that prison, there were a lot of, not just our school, but a lot of of other um, people um, from the West. And one of them, you may have heard of him, he was the hero of the film Chariots of Fire, Eric Little, who was the Christian who refused to run his race at the Olympic Games on a Sunday. And he had to run a different race and he still got a gold medal. <laughs> so it was quite exciting looking at his gold medal. Oh, amazing, <laughs> so amazing. So. Coming back to Martin, just quickly, because Elizabeth, I mean, what a, what a foundation. Oh, my word. Um, you found yourself in the middle of a revival. Mm. Can you tell us something about that? Yes, 1973, there was a, a sweeping revival in East Malaysia, in Sarawak. And it started in a little town called Barrio in Sarawak. Uh, and the whole town, except one couple, but the whole town was converted uh, and uh, radically revived uh, with real revival Christianity, not just a sort of ordinary conversion. Uh, and uh, then it swept through the whole of Sarawak and Sabah, uh, Revivals normally, uh, if they're not grounded in really good biblical teaching and knowledge, they tend to wither and die. And so 1974, 43 years ago, I was invited to go out and do some Bible teaching for this revival movement. Uh, and that was just amazing. Uh, in the area where it started, uh, this little town of Barrio, uh, all the law courts were closed for four years because there was no more crime. Uh, and people who had been suing each other were reconciled, so there was nothing for law courts to do. Uh, uh, I left my luggage uh, in the airport hall for three days and nights unattended uh, with, in those days one had cameras, uh, with a camera loose on top. Uh, and uh, it stayed there unattended in the airport hall for three days and nights. When I came back, it was not only safely there, but also a mound of 
little brown envelopes with money in, oh. lying loose in the airport. And there was enough money on my suitcase there uh, in the airport to pay my airfare from London to East Malaysia uh, <laughs> and back, and all my in-house expenses. The Muslim government withdrew all police because they were redundant. What do you want police for in a revival? <laughs> I remember talking to the headmaster of the local secondary school, and he told me how wonderful it was to teach now in the revival <laughs> because they had no discipline problems anymore in the school because all the children were revived. Oh and... So you still had teaching issues with some kids wow. being bright and some less bright, yeah. uh, but no discipline problems. Nobody was ever unpunctual to a class. Uh, <laughs> that's what a teaching post should be. Uh, and you see what I mean when I say that we're, we're looking for something new in Britain, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, and of a real revival. Mm. Um, so uh, I was in Sarawak again just a fortnight ago and I met actually some of the people who'd been in the revival and who I'd met in 1974 and immediately there was a sort of sense of revival. It was just amazing. Uh, and they began to tell me what I had taught on 43 years ago, <laughs> and one actually wanted to go through all my talks and tell me the points that I had had in my talks 43 years ago. Wow. Uh, that's revival. Amazing. That's uh, remarkable. Uh, we need that, but yeah. good biblical teaching with the work of the Holy Spirit. and. Uh, Make sure that you have adequate biblical teaching in your worship also. <laughs> I can't wait. That's what I want. Elizabeth, how many times did Martin ask you to marry him? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we think really we should be in the Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> <laughs> because he asked me to marry him here in England and then the next place was in Egypt and the next place was in Democratic Republic of Yemen. <laughs> <laughs> he asked me again and he asked me in India <laughs> and uh, Colombo in Sri Lanka. <laughs> so you were persistent? He kept Yes. Persistent, yes. Things, right? <laughs> and you kept saying no? Well, yeah. I did, I'm no. afraid. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that made you finally say yes? <laughs> finally, we arrived in Singapore and uh, we settled down to missionary work and the Lord just confirmed in my heart, yes, yes, he it is the It was the, the right mission one. field. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite a couple, aren't they? <laughs> so, just normally with a speaker, we only ask one talk of them. But of you guys, we've asked 
three talks, which is quite a marathon. So this morning, we've asked you to do, uh, as, as you guys will hopefully be aware, this morning's talk is Jesus and Islam, which is such an important topic and such an important issue, both, both for us personally with our relationships with Muslims that we may have, but also on current affairs, anything we watch on the media, we so need to understand this issue. But this afternoon, you're going to be speaking on Jesus and Israel, and this evening, you'll be speaking on Jesus and the nations. So for anyone who's not yet made up their mind as to whether they're going to go this afternoon or this evening, or whether people don't even know that's happening, would you mind talking about and telling people, just briefly giving people a tiny glimpse of what you're going to be speaking about this afternoon and this evening? Yes, I noticed that uh, Christians are quite divided uh, as to whether they're sort of pro-Israel and pro-Jews or whether they're pro-Palestinian uh, and they often take sides uh, and uh, that's not helpful. So uh, I want to look a little bit from the Jewish point of view at uh, what's going on uh, uh, and from the inside, not, not looking into it from outside, being Jewish myself. Uh, uh, I notice also that uh, some Christians in our churches are going overboard on Jewish issues. Uh, and uh, it's all got to be Israel and Jews and Jewish songs and Jewish this and Jewish that. Uh, quite unrealistic, may I say. Um, because uh, Elizabeth will reassure you that uh, we Jews are not ideal. <laughs> So we'll look at some of the Jewish issues, and uh, that will touch on some quite difficult things. Also, the Holocaust will come up, and so on. Uh, and then this evening, the task of mission, and Jesus' view of mission. And uh, I rejoice with you that you've got your team going to Cambodia regularly each year. Yeah, and uh, I trust that from this church there will be people not only going short term but also long term all over the world with the good news, the amazing good news of Jesus. Uh, and we'll look at the task of mission as it is uh, in the New Testament particularly uh, and going on to today. Elizabeth. We were wondering if we could just mention we've brought a book table with us, and as you leave, you'll find it outside there, um, all on special offer. They're, they're all five pounds, so... <laughs> we like that. There, um, except there are two, our two biographies. There's my biography, God Can Be Trusted, which is about my childhood in China, and then the amazing work that we saw in North Sumatra, where God was just changing hearts and bringing hundreds of people into the church, together with Martin's life story, uh, Life's Tapestry. These are two for six pounds. Um, and then he's got some... There. I'll 
mention You'll those. mention those later. Yes, so do please look at the books afterwards. Thank you. Wonderful. You can tell, can't you? Martin and Elizabeth are quite an amazing couple. So Martin's now going to be speaking. And so I'll, as we clear the stage, please give a warm round of, a, a round of applause to welcome Martin and Elizabeth. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I probably should have accepted Elizabeth's uh, suggestion. Uh, I don't usually accept her suggestions. <laughs> and mentioned the two books that I wanted to recommend specially, but you'll find all sorts of others. Um, you'll realize, of course, that 35 minutes on Islam is uh, it's playing games, really. Uh, it's... It's ridiculous, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's lovely to be able to do that little, little bit, so thank you for allowing me to it. Uh, but uh, I have written a book, Beyond Beards and Burkas, uh, and what I've done in this book is uh, I've taken a whole lot of different Muslims of very different backgrounds that I have known or met personally, and with each one I've given in some detail uh, one major conversation I've had with them about the Christian faith and Islam. And I hope you'll learn quite a bit about grassroots Islam from that, uh, and also how to communicate with your Muslim friends and neighbors. So that's there. And when I was in Asia, uh, well, in Malaysia, it was illegal to preach to Muslims, to witness in any way to a Muslim. And I was spied on, I was watched by the government quite carefully. Uh, and uh, I developed the art of storytelling. Uh, and in fact, uh, among the Muslims in Malaysia, I became known as the storyteller. Uh, and uh, you'll find that in Britain today, in the postmodern world, storytelling is the way to win an argument. It's the means of communication, isn't it? Uh, so I hope you'll find that really helpful and enjoyable, too. It's got lots of stories in it. Well, Islam. I find that uh, Christians are often in a little bit of a tension because on the one side, they're influenced by what is politically correct in Britain, namely that uh, the violent extremist Islam, they're not proper Muslims. Uh, they're just a little sort of almost a sort of sect of Islam. And of course, Islam is really a religion of peace and, uh, and love and uh, believes in loving your neighbor like everybody else which is absolute rubbish, but anyway, uh, I've never heard a Muslim suggest that you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's quite un-Islamic. Uh, love your Muslim neighbor, maybe. Well, even that not. Uh, be united with your Muslim neighbor, but not love them. 
Uh, uh, so, but on the one side, the politically correct uh, and that feeling of tolerance that is so much part of the modern world. And then on the other side, Christians notice the, the persecution and the fact that violence is uh, widespread right through the Muslim world. It's not just a few here and there. And it's right through the history of Islam. And they can't put those two together. And so we have to ask ourselves, uh, what is the reality concerning violence? Actually, a survey was done of British Muslims a few years ago, uh, asking the question whether they supported the whole thing of 9-11 and violence against the Western world. 65% of British Muslims said no, we don't like that. But 35%, a minority therefore, but a very considerable minority, 35% said yes, we support 9-11, think it was a good thing, and support violence against the Western world as the enemy of Islam. 35% of course of British Muslims, roughly a third of, shall we say, three million, very difficult to get accurate statistics actually, but call it three million for nice easy arithmetic, a third of that makes one million. That's hard work for the security people, isn't it? <laughs> to keep tabs of a million people is quite impossible. So what is it in Islam? Well, Muhammad himself. Muhammad was a, a man of war, a man of violence. But Muhammad is, for Muslims, the ideal man. And we should follow Muhammad in every detail. Even the way he cleaned his teeth or the way he spat out his watermelon pips or any little detail, let alone in the big things. And therefore, we should be like Mohammed. But Mohammed was a man of war, a man of violence, quite different from Jesus. I've been very struck recently by the story of Peter cutting off the ear of Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I notice that that is in all four Gospels. Very few things in the life of Jesus are in all four of the Gospels. But Malchus' ear is in all four. <laughs> it's a significant story and significant in your relationship with the modern world that we as Christians are not violent and Jesus opposed violence. But Mohammed was a man of War, he killed many, including two whole tribes of Jews. And the Quran. Well, the Quran is mixed. There are some verses that are very friendly to Jews and to Muslims, and to Christians, sorry, to Jews and Christians. 
There's even a verse that says that if you have a, a question, ask the Christians because they will know. <laughs> That's a good piece of advice. <laughs> so there are lots of verses that are very warm and friendly and nice in relationships with Jews and with Christians. But then there are also lots of verses that are saying, fight them, kill them, and so on. Now here we have to do a little theology. Sorry about that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Both in the Quran and in the Bible, there seem to be verses or passages that contradict each other. In Christianity, we have a long theological tradition that where there seem to be contradictions in the Bible, we seek to reconcile those to understand what the two different authors are saying so that we can accept both as the word of the Lord, as scripture, and as truth. Islam has a different theology. Their theology is that the later revelation, the one that came later to Muhammad, cancels out, abrogates is the good word, cancels out, abrogates the earlier revelation. Now some of the revelations in the Quran were revealed while Muhammad was still in Mecca. And others were revealed when he moved to Medina. Unfortunately, all the peaceful verses, the friendly verses, are early revelations. They come in the Meccan period. And the violent ones, all of them, come in the later Medinan period. So actually it is accepted in Islamic theology and in Islam generally, therefore, that the violent verses abrogate or cancel out all the peaceful ones. So although our politicians, etc., love to quote the, the friendly verses, they don't tend to know their theology of Islam adequately and therefore don't realize that those verses have actually been abrogated. Well, violence. But amazingly, what you see in Islam today is two rival, almost, streams. On the one side, you see the growth, and it is a very definite growth, in the extremist side, what is known as Islamism, the Islamist side, the violent side. But also at the same time, you see a growth of reaction against that within the Muslim community, uh, not only in Britain, but worldwide. Uh, and that is leading to very considerable openness and questioning within the Muslim community. And that is a new phenomenon in the last few years. So that now we are seeing lots of Muslims asking questions about Christianity 
and increasing numbers becoming Christian. Now, I'm old, and I've been doing talks on Islam in Christian churches for 50 years or so. And I remember, when you get old, you live in your reminiscences. But I remember in the good old days, or the bad old days, actually, I often used to begin my talks with a little picture of a boy with a toy bow and arrow standing in front of a huge British castle with great thick stone walls and a moat around and shooting his little toy arrow against the walls of this castle. And of course, the arrow makes no impact whatsoever, drops down into the moat, and uh, as we say in the Anglican church, here endeth the lesson. <laughs> but, uh, and I would say, mission among Muslims, except Indonesia, the one exception, but except in Indonesia where literally hundreds of thousands and indeed Muslim, uh, millions of Muslims were turning to the Lord. But outside of Indonesia, none, virtually none. But that's completely outdated today. Uh, I, I would never give that sort of a talk now. Because we are seeing movements of God the house churches in Iran, for example, we don't know exactly their membership statistics are very unreliable, but somewhere between one and two million members now, in spite of ferocious persecution. And Muslims in, and Iranians in Britain are turning to the Lord in large numbers. The Iranian church in Glasgow, for example, uh, has had to fix a rule in their church that uh, you're not allowed to do an alpha course and, uh, if there are already 40 Muslims on the course. And we met a lady who, when we asked her if she was a Christian yet, she said, no, I'm on the waiting list. <laughs> Because she said, my church has a rule that you're not allowed to become a Christian until you've done the Alpha course. <laughs> and she said, I tried to get on the last Alpha course, but it was full. There were already 40 on it, 40 Muslims. And, but she said, I'm right at the top of the waiting list for the next one, and at the end of the course, I'm going to become a Christian. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's church growth. <laughs> uh, uh, so not only in Iran but also Iranians elsewhere wonderfully today there's a new movement that has uh, begun definitely begun of Afghan refugees here in Western Europe not only in Britain uh, and little Afghan fellowships and churches are springing up now in many of our towns, very secretly because of the fear of violence and so on, uh, but uh, they're there and growing. Uh, 
We've had our first mass movement to Christ in Algeria, uh, the first one in North Africa since the time of Muhammad. And uh, around 120,000 Muslims have turned to the Lord in Algeria in the last 20 or 30 years. I could go on. Uh, growth of the church among Muslims today. So be encouraged. Don't fear uh, witnessing with Muslims. Uh, just a little warning that Islam very often produces a spirit of fear. And that is a spirit of fear, not just fear. Uh, and needs to be dealt with. So if you find yourself feeling a little afraid of Muslim reaction, uh, you know how to deal with it. Uh, God is at work among Muslims today. Now, very commonly among uh, some of us uh, working among Muslims, uh, we tend to say that there are three backgrounds that are very common for people who turn from Islam to faith in Jesus. And I want to give those three backgrounds to you. The first one is, nearly all the converts are people who've had a long-term friendship or contact, close contact, with a Christian that they respect. And I want to emphasize a Christian they respect. And part of that respect, may I just reiterate what I said about revival, uh, part of that respect will be a real knowledge of your scriptures uh, and being a person of prayer. Prayer and Bible together. But a, a long-term relationship. Uh, and... Muslims generally don't turn quickly to the Lord. It takes time. I, I sometimes enjoy Californian statistics, which make you smile sometimes. I, I did read one Californian statistic that there is only one known Jewish believer in Britain. I took it to a board meeting of Jews for Jesus <laughs> and pointed out that only one of us was a Christian. <laughs> there was some disagreement on the board. <laughs> but um, this other statistic is that the average Muslim convert only becomes a convert on the 19th time of hearing the gospel. <laughs> How on earth you measure that, I cannot imagine. Uh, it's a ridiculous statistic, isn't it? <laughs> but it's actually true. <laughs> no, not the 19. But it conveys truth. It conveys the truth that actually Muslims don't normally turn to the Lord on the first, the second, the third, or the fourth time of hearing the good news of Jesus. It takes time and perseverance and long friendship, so be ready to persevere, to endure, to love people. Long term, 
which is one reason why in mission work among Muslims, we are looking for long-term missionaries, not just for short-termers. Short-termers are excellent in many things, but for witness among Muslims, we really want some long-termers. Well, a long-term relationship with a Christian they respect. Secondly, a serious reading of at least part of the New Testament. And so I would strongly recommend that if you're relating to Muslims, that you, by hook, or preferably not by crook, <laughs> you seek to get a New Testament into the hands of those that you are befriending and sharing with and getting to know. Uh, so actually with Muslims, I always have a, a sort of double purpose. With ordinary British people, so to speak, uh, I just want to get them converted, full stop. But with Muslims, I have a, a sort of intermediate stage, part of the 19 times, <laughs> yeah, that I want to get a New Testament into their hands and preferably aim, if you can, to suggest to them that you read this book together so that uh, you can share its meaning and answer their questions. And of course, you form a lovely relationship while you do that. So a long-term reading, a serious reading of Scripture and the third one is something miraculous, something that demonstrates the power of God in action. Because they will almost certainly have persecution. Very, very likely they will lose their job. Very, very likely they will be thrown out of their home. Very, very likely, even in Britain, uh, they can be murdered. So it's serious becoming a Christian. You've really got to count the costs before you become one. And to come to Christ in that sort of context without a definite conviction and experience that, that Jesus has power is very difficult. So some miraculous thing that they associate with Jesus or with the Christian faith. Now, in my experience, that miraculous thing is normally a vision or a dream, not a physical healing. I find that's quite rare in the Muslim world. Uh, God normally works among Muslims by means of a vision or a dream. And so I would recommend, not to make a big thing of it, but just in passing in your conversation, mention to your Muslim friends that actually if they have a dream or a vision that they don't understand, come and see you because you interpret dreams. No problem when God gives a dream, it's usually very clear. And actually when Satan gives a dream, 
it's also usually very clear. If it's not clear, it's very likely too much cheese at night. <laughs> Purely psychological. And we've all had psychological dreams, haven't we? Uh, most Muslims will have dealt with evil spirits. Evil spirit activity is normal in Islam. Not among the extremists so much, but with all the others, the ones you're likely to relate to. And therefore, God works in that way, in the deliverance, in the name of Jesus, deliverance from evil spirits. And therefore, in your conversation again, you're going to have busy conversations, uh, but in your conversation at some stage, just mention that actually if people are having trouble with an evil spirit, just come to you because you cast them out. No problem. That's what Jesus does. Uh, and that's reality with Muslims. Occasionally, it'll be some other sort of miraculous power activity of God. Uh, it may be a physical healing or something, but that, uh, that's quite rare. It's normally a visual dream or a casting out of evil spirits. One of the problems in relating with Muslims is that our concept of God is very different. And of course, they and we use the word God very freely and easily. And when we witness, we talk about God and no problem. But it is a problem, actually, because the Muslim understanding of God is different. Firstly, in the nature of God. In the Bible, the key characteristics of our God are holiness and love. Holiness and if you look at a concordance of the Bible, you'll see there are rows and rows of verses about holiness. And holiness is central to our Christian faith. Notice the revival produced holiness, didn't it? Yes. No law courts, no police, no bad behavior in school, etc. Holiness. And our God is a holy God. Now, if you say that to a Muslim, they'll say, well, well, yes, of course. But the holiness of God is very secondary in Islam. It's not primary at all. Actually, Muslims like to talk of the 99 most beautiful names of Allah, of God, and only one relates to his moral character, Al-Quddus, the Holy One. Only one out of 99. But our Bible is full of the holiness of God and the love of God. God is love. 
not just he loves, but actually is love. Poor God, he can't help but love. <laughs> because it's his fundamental nature. Now, in Islam, the fundamental nature of God is not holiness, and it's certainly not love. There's no idea in Islam of God loving. Uh, the fundamental is that God is all-powerful. It's the power of God, the greatness of God. That's the fundamental in Islam. And that causes problems. Be very careful in your Christianity that you make sure that the holiness of God and the love of God are primary, not the greatness and the power of God. They're subsidiary. Mm -hmm. Be careful. Uh, uh, now, in Islam, because the power of God is primary, God can do what he likes. But the Bible is full of things like God cannot lie. God cannot do what is evil. God must keep his promises. God must do what is right. And because God is love, God must love. Amazing. That is blasphemy in Islam. Because God is powerful. He's all-powerful. He can do what he likes. And to be sure of eternal life, to be sure of heaven, that's impossible in Islam. Because God, God could take somebody who's very moral and very good and a true follower of Islam, etc., etc. And if God wants, he can send him to hell for her him or her. And likewise, of course, if God wants, all-powerful, he can take somebody who's rotten through and through and pop him up into heaven. <laughs> God can do what he wants. And if God wants to deceive you or to lie to you or do what is evil, he won't normally because... not his normal but he could you can't be sure Islam believes in one God only no trinity and I want just to conclude with the fact that our belief in the trinity is the central truth of the Christian faith and any religion that does not have a belief in the Trinity is down the drain. The Trinity is glorious. Rejoice in this truth. Why? Well, with the Trinity, God has relationships, doesn't he? The Father relates to the Son, and the Son to the Spirit, and the Spirit to the Son, etc., and we have a divine model of relationships. And relationships are the very name of the game for life, aren't they? That's what we want. We want living, true, loving, godly relationships. But the monotheistic God that has no trinity has no relationships within himself. There's no model of relationships in, in Islam, therefore. 
But in Christianity with the doctrine of the Trinity, ah, good theology is a good thing. We need the Trinity for relationships very, very quickly. Because of the Trinity, we can have the God who is on high, the God who in Islam is Akbar, the Great One, Greater One, it is actually, it's comparative, but never mind that. Uh, high and mighty and glorious. You can't know him, you can't relate to him. Because God is high, God is Akbar, God is great. A Muslim leader said to me fairly recently, an ant cannot know personally, cannot relate to an elephant. Little ants like you and me, sorry, cannot relate to the almighty God. But with the Trinity we have the God who is on high, glorious and holy and beyond. And at the same time, we have Emmanuel, the God who is with us. It's wonderful. And of course, with the Trinity, you can have God in us, the work of the Holy Spirit, to make us holy like Jesus and like the Father, to bring us into a knowledge of God in his fullness, the work of the Spirit. If you have no Trinity, you have no Holy Spirit. And a religion without the Holy Spirit is self-centered. It's looking only to what I do for God and has no knowledge of God in me, God at work in my life, and God at work in us as a fellowship, as a people. Well, I've touched on just one or two things. My time is up. Let me just say, also, in closing, that if you're working at all among Muslims, you need to do a bit of reading and a little bit of study. And actually, at the college where I've, Elizabeth and I have taught for so many years, at All Nations Christian College, uh, we run an annual Islamics course just for one week. This year it's December 3 to 9. December 3 to 9. You can look it up on the net under All Nations Christian College. Uh, and I would very much recommend that course to you if you're working at all among Muslims. Well, the clock keeps moving, even at Emmaus here. Amazing. I've just asked Martin whether he would pray for us all uh, before he uh, leaves. So I, I wonder whether we could stand and receive uh, a prayer from Martin. Martin, would you, would you oh. stay and pray for everyone? All right. Yes. Oh, right now. Yes. <laughs> right now. <laughs> Sorry, I 
I thought we might have another song, but never mind. No, uh, we can pray. Let's pray together. Let's have a moment of quiet first. Sometimes we do too much talking and don't listen to God. Our Father, we ask that you will graciously use us in your service. We pray that even through your church here and your people here, many of our Muslim friends might come to know you and love you and find their relationship with the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, that they might have life and life abundant. Lord, work by your Spirit, in your people and through your people, for your glory. Lord, we ask that you will graciously bring revival, even here in Britain, even here in Guildford. Spirit of God, fall upon us, we pray, and bring that sweeping revival that will change not only us and set us on fire, but change our whole community here. And as we see the terrible problems of British life today, we ask our Father for the holiness of God to spread through our land by your Spirit. And so, Father, we ask that the blessing, your blessing, the blessing of the Father, the blessing of the Son, the blessing of the Holy Spirit may be upon each one of us upon us as a church, and through us into our community for your glory.